Welcome to Living Word Church. Let's hear from Pastor Ben as he teaches from the Gospel of John in our Eternal Word series. Just a little recap. We are in the upper room discourse. We are in, we're hours away from Christ's betrayal and arrest and, and from him being crucified on the cross. And so this is the, this is the framework. This is the, the place where we are at here in this conversation. We're in John 14. We've looked at, we've looked at the beginning of John 14. Jesus looked at his disciples and he says, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. And then last week, to me, John 14, 6 is the pinnacle of what Jesus said in his earthly ministry. Whenever he said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. And so there is only one way to heaven, one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so that's where we've left off today. We're going to pick up uh, in verse 8, John 14, verse 8. And, and I've titled the message this morning, Show Us the Father. Show Us the Father. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to look into your word. But we know that when we look into your word, we behold wonderful things, eternal things, glorious things. Your word is truth. Your word is life. Your word is salvation. Through your word, men and women can be born again. And so, Lord, it's not just a man's word we're interested in. Lord, it is your word. And I pray that, that you would help me to get out of the way, that you would help uh, your word to shine through my words. And I pray that, that everyone here would be ready to receive, have ears to listen, hearts to receive. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me this morning to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever heard of the term doppelganger? So the term doppelganger uh, is a term that describes somebody who looks just like somebody else. I've had that happen to me in public before. I had something interesting happen the other day. It's a little off subject. Um, I don't know if it was a compliment or, a, or, a, or what it was, but I was at Rouse's and this cashier lady She's just looking at me, and she says, I just can't place you. I've seen you somewhere. I said, yeah, probably here because I'm here every day. She said, no. She said, no, it's something else. I just can't figure it out. She said, you know what it is? You look like a face that would be on a picture frame that you buy at Walmart. <laughs> I said, Okay. <laughs> All right. I didn't know how to take that. So I guess that, that generic, I'm very generic is what she was trying to say. <laughs> this is a true story. Last week, I'm back at Rouse's. The same cashiers checking out my groceries. And this lady walks up out of nowhere and is looking at me, a customer. She said, do I know you? I said, no. <laughs> I said, I'm Pastor Ben Buffkin. A pastor at Living Word Church, maybe you've been to Living Word before, said, I'm the new interim headmaster at, Living, at Home of Christian School, maybe your kids go to the school. She said, no, no. She said, you just look so familiar. And the cashier said, she turned around and said, like he's from a picture, from a, a picture frame that you bought at, at, at Walmart? And she said, yeah, just like that. <laughs> so anyway, as a little side note. I've never had anybody say that before, but anyway, so doppelganger, back to what I was saying there, doppelganger. Some people have said that Joel is my doppelganger, my son Joel, the drummer that played, that plays for us. Um, yeah, I mean, he looks just like me. Now he splits his hair down the middle, so it looks, looks, looks a little different now, and, but, but he does look just like me. The, you know the term, you've heard, you've heard the term spitting image or the spitting image uh, it was founded in 18, that phrase was, uh, come, uh, came up with in 1881, and it literally means spirit and image. You, you, you look like the spirit and image of somebody. You look just like somebody. But the truth is, is that no one person is exactly like another person. Even identical twins, you get to know those twins and you can talk to the parents. We may be deceived and be confused with identical twins, but the parents, they live with those children. They know the distinctions with those kids. And when we think about God, 
We think about Christ, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are exactly the same. They are one God, yet they are distinctive. There are, they, 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 there are distinctions. And so just as there is no one person that is exactly the like, that is exactly like, and, and, and they all have distinctions, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are exactly the same. They are exactly the same, yet also at the same time, there are distinctions. Hebrews 1 says this about Jesus. Hebrews 1, it says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance, speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Listen, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is not just reflecting the glory of God. He is God and he radiates the glory of God because he's God. And Hebrews 1 says there that he is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the perfect imprint, the exact representation of the nature and the essence of God in time and space. God Eternal God came into time and space. John chapter 1, when we started this journey, in the beginning, in eternity past, when time began, when God started time and he started, he created the worlds, in, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and that Word, that eternal Word, God became flesh. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is God incarnate. Uh, uh, when Jesus was born, Scripture says that he is Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. God with us. In our statement of faith about the nature of God, this is uh, the Trinitarian nature of God. That You can go on our website, you can see this. It says, we believe in one God, eternally existing as one essence and three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully, equally, and eternally God, yet there is one God. Each person has precisely the same nature and attributes and is worthy of precisely the same worship, honor, and praise. The entire Christian faith is bound together with the confession of God's Trinitarian nature. This is our God. This is our God. Distinct, yet the same. One, yet three. This is our God. And in this section in John 14, uh, we could have had, I could have had a message just about the Trinity, and just about the nature of God. Jesus leans into declaring more clearly who he is to his disciples here. And, and we're going to look at the text in John 14. And he's, again, he's just told his disciples he's the way, the truth, and the life. He's, he's going away, he told them. And, 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 and uh, Thomas said, well, we don't know the way to where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus says, do not be confused. I am the way. I'm the way to where I'm going. I'm going to the Father. I'm going to prepare a way for you. And if you want to get there, I am the way to get there. I am the only way to get there. That's what we talked about last week. Now let's look at our text. And Jesus is going to talk about the Father here. Philip will have a question and Jesus will lean into his question to his statement. John 14, starting in verse 8. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So, the short purpose of this whole section is this, is Jesus is saying, I am God. I'm God. He's saying, when you look at me, when you've seen me with your eyes, Philip, of the disciples, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so we will endeavor. Here's what we're going to do this morning with this text. We will endeavor to answer one 
simple question that springs from this text. This is what sprung from the text as I was studying it. This is what's so beautiful about the word of God. If you were taking this text and you were preaching it, something would spring up in your heart and, and you would squeeze out from the word of God some amazing truth that you see in this text. And this is what sprung to my mind and my heart as I, as I was studying this. Here's the question. What does the life of Jesus teach us about God? Emmanuel, God with us, the Father God, God, eternal God with us? What does the life of Jesus, incarnate God, teach us? What does the life of Jesus teach us about the Father? Or what does the life of Jesus teach us about God? What can we know about God through the life of Jesus? And here's what we're going to look at. Three things we're going to look at from this text. We're going to look at the words of Jesus, the works of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. The words of Jesus, the works of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. So the first thing that we see, point number one, the words of Jesus teach us about what pleases God. The words that Jesus spoke teach us about what pleases God. This is what the life of Jesus shows us about God. When he talked, we can know what pleases God. Look back to the text. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. Notice real quickly there that it's not Philip saying, show me the Father. I believe that Philip is speaking for all of the disciples here. This is all of their question. They show us the Father. It's enough for us. You said you're, you're going to the Father, that, that, that you're going to prepare a place for us, and you said that you're the way, and you clearly have a connection with the Father. So, so if you would just show us the Father, it is enough for us. We're good. We're good. That's what we want to know. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me? And, and I, I, think, I think there's a little bit of a rebuke here. There's a little bit of a rebuke here to, to, to Philip and to the other disciples. Have I been here with you so long and, and you've heard my words and you've seen my works and you still don't know that I'm God? You know, if you fast forward to the, to the resurrection, post-resurrection, and Jesus comes into the room, back into the room where the disciples are at, and they're, they're huddled up trying to figure out what's going to happen with their life and their future. And Jesus walks to the wall, and he goes, and who does he see first? He sees Thomas. What's the first word after Thomas touches his hands and his side? What's, what, what does Thomas say? First thing he says, he says, my Lord and my, my God. My Lord and my God. Have you been with me so long, Philip? disciples it's going to be so long that you don't know that i'm god when you've seen me, and, and so he leans into it, he says when you've seen me you've seen the father how, how why are you saying show us the father i'm god i'm god so some have tried to argue that jesus never claimed to be god but this text makes it abundantly clear and there's other texts that, that, that we could show that we've actually gone over in the gospel of john but this text alone this is all that we have of Jesus' declaration that he's God. This, this is so clear. He's looking at his disciples that are saying, show us God, and in essence, he's saying, look no further. They're saying, show us God. The Father is God, Yahweh. They're saying, show us Yahweh. He's saying, look no further. Look at me when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Wow. I mean, seriously. Can you imagine if, if I said that to you or someone else said that to you? Be a little like, whoa, you know what you just said? This is why the Pharisees, Jesus made it abundantly clear who who he was when he talked to the Pharisees, when he had other conversations. And this is why at one point when Jesus declared in John 8, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He's declaring he was eternal. I existed before Abraham ever existed. And what did they do? They picked up stones to throw at him because they said he was a blasphemer. He was blaspheming God, claiming to be equal with God, claiming to be God. And so Jesus is clearly saying that he is God. He's God. When you're looking at me, you're looking at the Father. But, but, but notice verse 10. Look back to the text, verse 10. The words that I say to you, do, I do not speak on my own authority. What Jesus is saying here is that the words that I speak reflect a greater authority or a greater source. Jesus is saying here that his words are a perfect reflection of God's will. He's saying that his words are a perfect reflection of God's will. So so you could say it like this, that if you want to know what God thinks, 
or feels about something, listen to Jesus. If you want to know what God, what God thinks or feels about something, listen to Jesus. You remember earlier we read, uh, Pastor Vern read in Ephesians 5, where the Apostle Paul says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you want to know and we want to know what is pleasing to the Lord, what God thinks or feels about something, listen to Jesus. Go to the Gospels. What did Jesus say? The words of Jesus teach us about what pleases God. This is, the, this is that question. When we look at the life of Jesus, his words and his works and his mission, what do they teach us about God? Well, again, his words. Let's look at his words. The words of Jesus teach us. Now, we could go through many places in the Bible, in, in the Gospels, and we can look at the words of Jesus, and, and I could show you different things that Jesus said that reflect what would please God, right? There's so many places we, we could go. I have several sermons worth of things that we could cover. But I think there's one section in the New Testament, in particular, when we're thinking about the Sermon on the Mount and looking at Matthew chapter 5 and, and, and 6, this was his sermon. This was the Sermon on the Mount. This is the, 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 the sermon of all sermons that he preached. And, and I want to look at these words of Jesus, because if, if, if we're just trying to see what pleases God through the words of Christ, I think this is a great section for us to look at. So the question is, is what pleases God? Well, what did Jesus say? I think there's some categories here. I think the first thing that pleases God is humility before God. Look at, look at the Sermon on the Mount. Just a little highlight here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled or satisfied. When you, when you look at this section, when Jesus begins, when he's speaking his words, the words that I'm saying, they, they, they come from a higher authority, Jesus is saying, because they, they are God's words. When he's speaking, when you see here in this section in Matthew 5, I see humility. Humility, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. It means that when we come before God, we don't come before God with all of our good works, with all of our self-effort, with all, with all of our experience, with all of our, our theological knowledge, and say, God, because I, I know about you, because I, I understand you so deeply, because I attend church, because I, I am I, I, I'm such a spiritual beacon in my community. God, 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 this is how I'm coming to you to, to worship you so you would receive me. No, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. They come and they recognize that they are nobody without Christ. They come humbly before God. This is what pleases God. It's humility before him. And notice what it says there next. Blessed are those who mourn. What does it mean, blessed are those who mourn? Clearly, when we talk about grief share, there's times where we mourn over the loss of loved ones or friends or situations we walk through. But the context here is a mourning over sin. So we come to God with a sense of humility, not my good works. I'm not coming with all my self-effort to, 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 to say, here I am, God, receive me. And we're not coming like that. And secondly, we're coming with a deep mourning over our sin. And the heart of that is humility. Humility before God is what pleases him. This is what we see with what Jesus is saying here. I think secondly, what pleases the Lord is not only humility before him, but humility before others. Look at the, look at the next section there that Jesus says. Look at, listen to his words, eternal words, God's words. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall what? Receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see it? Humility before God. But humility before others. Blessed are the merciful. Are we merciful? Are we peacemakers? What pleases God? If you want to know what pleases God, listen to God. And Jesus is God, so listen to his words. Humility before God, humility before others. What's the third thing that pleases God? I think this is so powerful. I think truth in the inward being pleases God. Truth in the inward being pleases God. Humility before him, humility before others. But the psalmist David understood what pleased the Lord. Do you remember what he said in Psalm 51? Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You delight in truth in the inward being. So in this section in Matthew 5, 
truth in the inward being. Do you remember Jesus said, Matthew 5, you heard it said? You heard it said? You heard it said? He talked about different areas of Torah, of the law. And what was Jesus doing here? He was saying the law is good. The law is true. You heard it said. This is true. You should not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You should not be angry. You should not steal, lie. The law is good. You've heard it said. But I'm telling you that there is a greater law. There is a greater law that you could be in obedience technically to the law. But in the inside, like he rebuked the Pharisees later, in the inside, you are a hypocrite. So what pleases God? Truth in the inward being. You have heard it said. To those of old, you shall not murder, but whoever and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Wow. What about this? You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So do you see it? You want to know what pleases God? Listen to Jesus. What, does, what do the words of Jesus, Jesus said here in, in our text in John 14, my words come from another source, a greater authority. My words represent God's will. So what is God's will? Humility before him. Humility before others. Truth in the inward being. And, and lastly, real quickly, I, so many things I could have picked from but just looking at Matthew 5, I think another thing that pleases God is a life that is lived for his glory. A life that is lived for his glory. Look back to the text in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen? So what pleases the Lord? Philip, Philip says, show us the Father. Show us the Father. Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are one. I am in the Father. The Father is in me. And the words that I speak reflect God's will. So what pleases God? Well, what did Jesus say? He said in Matthew 5, humility. Don't come before me with all your good works and your self-effort and think that I'm going to approve of you because you're a good person. No, come mourning over your sin. Come repenting over your sin. Come with humility before God and let that humility be lived out with humility before others. And, and let, let, let your life be, be true on the outside as a reflection of what is true on the inside. Let truth be in the inward being and let, you, and let our lives be lived for his glory. Amen? Jesus is God. And his words reflect perfectly the will of God. So if you think about it, that type of person. When we talk about Jesus being God and his words reflect God's words, God's will, and we, we see his words and we think about a person who's following God's words and obeying his word and coming humbly before him and living the life of a Christian. You live in this type of culture with the perspective of Ephesians 5, trying to discern what pleases the Lord. Somebody may call you a Jesus freak. Somebody may look at you and say, you're just a little bit off your rocker. You, you really take this Christian stuff that serious? Yeah, you really can't take it that serious, right? You, you do know that there's many other ways to God. We talked about that last week, did we not? If you didn't hear that message last week, go back and listen to it. But that, that, that's the view of the world. I get that you, you, you take your Christianity serious, but, but you can't go that serious. You can't, you can't really go that serious. It, it, it's, it's, it's wrong to... It's wrong to to, 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 to live with your unmarried girlfriend or boyfriend and to, to be together as a married couple is, you, you can't take it that serious. It's, you know, it, gossip is okay just a little bit or, or this sin or that sin. You really take it that serious? You really want to please the Lord? You know what? I, I think we live in a time, we live in a time where people are not interested in pleasing God. They're not interested in pleasing God. Pleasing God, God is a peripheral thing. God is a thing that we do when we have time to do things of God. When, when, when there's nothing else that's getting involved in our schedule and nothing else taking us away from the other things that, that we want to do, then, then we're worried about pleasing God. That's our culture today. Pleasing God? I'm not worried about pleasing God. I want to please myself. I want my needs to be met. I want to live a life that is centered around me. I, I think author David Wells, he puts it really well. Author David Wells, when he talks about this, about our culture, about our time, pleasing God, 
Quote, it is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. What he doesn't mean is he's just ethereal or he has no substance. Listen, it's one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless, meaning he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as to not be noticeable. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nevertheless consider him less interesting than television. His commands less authoritative than their appetites. His judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. His truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. This is weightlessness. Please, God? Are you kidding me? Please, God? Well, how, so how, how about us today? What about in our life? Do, do people see Christ? Do people see a life that, it, that reflects the desire to please the Lord? Do we, please, do we desire to please the Lord? Look back at Ephesians 5. Pastor Vern read it. Walk as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's the world, but by contrast, as believers, this is us. We walk as children of the light, and we want to discern what pleases the Lord. Amen? And what pleases God? Well, the Word of God tells us what pleases God. And whose words are those words? They're the words of Christ. That's what Jesus said when Philip said, show us the Father, it's enough for us. Philip, have you been with me so long, you don't know that I'm God? The words... Believe me because of my words, the words that I speak, they have a greater authority. They reflect God's will. And as believers, we want to please God. We want to please God. The words I say to you, they reflect a greater authority. The words of Jesus teach us about what pleases God. Secondly, the works. Let's look at the works. The works of Jesus teach us about the compassion of God. So his words teach us what pleases God. Now his works teach us about the compassion of God. Look back to the text, John 14 and 11. Believe me, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or, or else believe on account of the works themselves. My words should tell you where I come from, but my works should as well. The, the, the works of Jesus. What were the works of Jesus? Jesus lived three and a half years, and he did a lot of works, did he not? The impact he made in Judea, uh, some people would say that, that nobody was sick in the region of Judea for three and a half years, except those from his hometown. I mean, he healed everywhere that he went, everywhere that he went. He was healing the sick. He, he raised the dead. He, 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 he did many mighty works. He walked on water. He, he fed thousands of people, tens of thousands of people with, with five loaves and two fish. The works that he did. What do they teach us about who God is? I, I think one of the things that stands out to me, what, what, what it teaches us about God, the works of Jesus, is it teaches us about his compassion. Jesus is compassionate. He is full of compassion. Think about it. When God took, took on flesh, what did he spend his time doing? He spent his time teaching, discipling, speaking. His words reflect God's will. And what else did he spend his time doing? Works miracles our acts of compassion that's what he spent his time doing all four gospels are filled with accounts of the works that jesus did uh, john john 20 the, the end of our gospel here gospel of john li listen to what it says about the works of jesus now jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written the ones that john gives account of so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of God, believe that I am God, the Son of God, on account of my works. The works are done for belief. Now, now look at the end, the last verse in the Gospel of John that we will cover, John 21, verse 25. John says that there's a lot of other signs that he did, but these are written. Now look what he says here. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen? All of his interactions, all the number of miracles and works and signs, all that he did could have been said, it could be said that they were done by his love and motivated by his love and compassion. Do you believe that? 
They were motivated by his love and compassion for God so loved the world that he gave. He was motivated by his great love. I love what Matthew 9 says. It won't be on the screens there for you, but it says here that when when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with what? Compassion. This is what the works of Jesus show us about the Father, that he is full of compassion. He is full of love. The word moved there, when it says Jesus was moved in Matthew 9, it's talking about being moved at the depth of who you are. At the deepest place of who you are, it literally means your bowels. At the deepest place of who you are. When Jesus saw the crowds, when he walked the earth, when God became man and he walked the earth, what does it teach us about God? It teaches us that he is moved with compassion and love for people. This is our God. This is what the works of God teach us about God. God and love go together, and Jesus is the perfect reflection of that reality. God and love go together, and Jesus is the perfect reflection of that reality. If I were to ask different people their views of God, what do you, what do you think about God? What do you think about the Father God? You know, if you're, if you're, if you're Muslim, if you follow the Islam faith, you, you know no context of grace and love and compassion. You have no hope in the afterlife that, that your sins are atoned for, and you can only hope that in, 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 in their belief there's only one sure way of eternal life, and that's through martyrdom, through killing other people, killing other people and getting to heaven. But other than that, there's no view of love and compassion because it's, it's, it's a false God. It's not a true God. But the God of creation, the God of the Bible, the God that has revealed himself not only in creation but in his word, when we think about God, many people would think of different things about God. You know, in Exodus 19, when God wanted to speak to his people, and Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai, and God's people had rebelled against his commandments, and God goes to speak to Moses, and he says, prepare the people, prepare the people. Don't let them touch the mountain. Prepare the people. And it says that when the glory of God came down on the mountain, that the mountain shook, and there was smoke, and there was lightning, and there was thunder, and the people were afraid. The people were afraid, and and this is a picture of, of God's holiness, of his sovereignty, of his power, that God is in control, and this is our God. He is high and holy and powerful and sovereign and in control. He rules the universe by the word of his power. This is our God. But if the words love and compassion are left out in our description of God, we fall terribly short in our understanding of who he is. If the words love and compassion are left out in our description of God, we fall terribly short in our description of God. Why? Because when God became flesh, he was moved with compassion and love for people. The God of Mount Sinai, the God who shook the mountain and smoke and lightning and thunder, that God, when he became flesh, he was moved with compassion for the sinner. He was moved with compassion for the lost. This is our God. What do we learn about God through Christ, we learn what pleases him through his words, but we love what we learn about the compassion of God through the works of God. I love this song, Give Us Your Heart. Listen to the words about Christ. Your eyes are on the lowly, though others look away. Your feet run to the broken. Your hands are quick to save. You walk with the forgotten and offer them a home, adopting the unwanted. That would be all of us. Adopting the unwanted, calling them your own. Give us your heart. Oh, give us your heart. Let the light of heaven shine as we step into the dark. Amen. I think of two accounts. Two accounts. There's many other accounts as we talked about the words of Jesus. So many different things we could look at that reveal 
what pleases the Lord, but when we think about his works, there's so many works that I could have talked about that reveal the compassion of God. When you think about the life of Jesus, how many stories? Uh, the, the woman caught in the act of adultery in John 8, uh, the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. I mean, so many different accounts that you can see the compassion of Christ. But there's two of them that really stand out to me. I, I love these accounts. This is the rich young man. The rich young man. He comes to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this rich young man, he was not only rich in finances, I'm sure, but he was rich in his own estimation of his works. Because when Jesus says, why do you, why do you call me good? There's no one good, right? And, he, and then he says, he says what's, the, what's, what's, what's the commandments? You want to know how to inherit eternal life? What's the commandments? You know the commandments. And what does the rich young ruler say, rich young man say? He says, I've done them all since my youth. So here's a, here's a young man coming to Jesus. What must I do? And, and what I think I see here in this account of the compassion of Christ with, the, with this young man is that this young man reflects us. This young man reflects sinful humanity. This young man reflects Adam and Eve in the garden. This young man reflects from the very beginning, humanity has always tried to atone for their own sin. Adam and Eve sin. Adam, where are you? And where is Adam and Eve? They have fig leaves tied around their private parts because they, they now they have shame and because of their nakedness and, and they're trying to do something from the fruit of the ground to atone for their own sin and rebellion against the holy God. And, that, and I think that that's what Jesus sees when he sees this rich young man. He sees me. He sees you. And look what it says here. Look what it says here in Mark 10. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And, and, and he said, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Oh, that's so good. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, you still lack one thing. You still lack one thing. You don't get it. You think that you're getting it all right and you're doing everything you're supposed to do, but you lack one thing. You've got to give it all. <laughs> this is about giving it all. This is about following me. This is about laying down all of your life, right? And I just love that phrase. Looking at him, he loved him. And I think, I think that the gaze of Christ right here is the gaze that led him to the cross because he could see you and he could see me. He could see all of us in our own attempts of self-effort and, and good works to atone for our sin. He saw us through this rich young man. He looked at him and he loved him. See the compassion of Christ, the goodness of God. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him, amen? Our God is good. Here's another account, a man with leprosy. This is in Matthew chapter 8, a man with leprosy. He's unclean. You know, those who had leprosy, spots on their skin, for whatever reason, the spots were there. They were, they were set aside from society. They were ostracized. They were pushed aside. They, they couldn't be around other people who weren't leprous or who had spots, and they had to live by themselves, fend for themselves, take care of themselves. They were separate from society, and if you got around them, even too close to them at some point, and you definitely, if you touch them, or you were considered unclean, even if you didn't contract what they had, just the fact that you untouched them, you were considered unclean, you were, had to become a part of their colony. These are lepers, leprosy. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 8. This leper, when he had come down from the mountain, Jesus had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshiped him. This leper risked it all. He came down where the crowd was. He broke through the crowd. He risked his own life. To come find Jesus. Lord, he says, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Do you, do you see it? Jesus touched him. You see the compassion of Christ? You remember the account in the Gospels where Jesus sent a word? sent a word and the child was raised up 
Jesus could have sent a word. He could have said, okay, back up a little bit here. Back up a little bit. I'm just going to speak to you here, and we're going to heal you, and you can go about your business. You can be cleansed from the leper colony. No, 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 no. Jesus reaches his hand out, and he touches the leper. Can you imagine the crowd? It says that great multitudes followed him. He came down from the mountain. He comes down from the mountain. Great multitudes are following him. A leper comes into the great multitude. And I can imagine the gasp, the awe, like, oh my goodness, what is this guy doing here? We know where he comes from. We see his skin. We see what he looks like. And Jesus leans in as he cries out, Lord, if you are willing, I know you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing. And he stretches out his hand. I can imagine the multitude think, what is he doing? But compassion and love for the outcast, for the sick, for the burden, for the lost. It, was, it is what moved him and compelled him, and he touched the man. He touched him. This is our God. And many, many other stories and conversations, meals with sinners. Do you remember, do you, do you remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, the wee little man, the tax collector, up in the tree. I love what Jesus told Zacchaeus. No one would want to eat with Zacchaeus. None of his own people would want to eat with him. Jesus looks up at the tree and says, come down today because I'm going to your house to have dinner with you today. That's our God. He's a God who loves sinners. He loves the sick. He loves the outcast. This is our God. This is who he is. Jesus has made God known. Show us the Father. Show us the Father. It's enough for us, Jesus. Show us the Father. Philip, Philip, have you been with me so long? Have you, have you heard my words? Have you seen my works to not know? You should know. And certainly, Philip was just like us. We're just like Philip. We, we want to live a, a Christian life not, not, not by faith. We want sight, don't we? That's what we want. I don't, I, I don't blame Philip. Show us the Father. I, that would be wonderful. I don't, I'm tired of living by faith and, and following your riddles. I'm confused about all that you're saying, Jesus. Just show us the Father. We're good. And Jesus says, you don't get it. You've been looking at him. You've been looking at God. And these are my words and these are my works. And John 1.18 says this, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Listen, he, meaning Jesus, has made him known. Jesus has made God known. The word known there is from the Greek word ex, 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 uh, ex egomai, ex egomai, and it means this. It comes from the same word that is used to describe biblical interpretation or exegesis. It means interpretation. Jesus interprets God. Jesus is the perfect explanation of God. Perfect explanation of God. It's a little side note here. You think about Jesus being the perfect explanation of God. He's the exact imprint, as Hebrews says, the exact imprint of the nature of God. He is God in the flesh. It makes you think twice about misrepresenting God, doesn't it? It makes you think twice about taking what the gospels say, what the word of God says, and making it say something different, doesn't it? You're not just twisting the Bible and, well, that's just my interpretation. And, and I know that it says he's the only way, but, but certainly there's got to be other ways. And I, and I know it says this or that, but, but I'm going to twist or change or alter. Have you ever been misrepresented? That's one thing for someone to misrepresent us and get our words wrong. Oh, but may we never misrepresent the words of Jesus because he's God. He's God. When we reinterpret the Gospels in Jesus, we are messing with God. When we take away from his words, when we change his message, when we water it down, when we don't preach it as it is and preach the truth, then we're messing with God. We're messing with God's message. We are blaspheming God. The question for us today as we think about his words and his works, do we represent the love of Christ to those around us? Do we represent his love? 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he did what? He first loved us. We love because he first loved us. Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? The words I say to you, they reflect a greater authority. The words of Jesus, as we saw earlier, 
teach us about what pleases God. And secondly, the works of Jesus teach us about the compassion of God. And lastly, lastly, it's not explicitly in our text here this morning, but the mission of Jesus becomes our mission as well. The mission of Jesus becomes our mission as well. The words, the works, and the mission. So what was Jesus' mission? What did he come to do? He came to die. He came to save. Emmanuel, God with us. He came to take on flesh, to absorb the wrath of God that, that we deserve for sin. He came to die on the cross to accomplish the plan of redemption that was established before the foundations of the world. This is the mission of Christ, to go to the cross, to be the substitute for sin. And when Jesus said it was finished, it was done. It was done. Reconciliation made possible. So now, how does the mission of Jesus become our mission? Is Jesus calling us to die for other people? Is that what the mission is, that, that we got to become substitutes for sin? Well, of course not. Hebrews says there's only one sacrifice for sin. No more sacrifices. His is the once-for-all sacrifice. How do we join Jesus in his plan of redemption? I'm glad you asked. It's very simple. It's not complex. You've heard this. If you've been in church, you've heard this all of your life. Pastor Scott obeyed a part of this command earlier when he baptized the Harris family. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them after the resurrection, before the ascension, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So how do we join the mission of Christ? How do we join in in, in his mission? It's to go into all the world to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he promises that if we will go about kingdom business, the great commission, if we'll go about kingdom work, that he will be with us to the end of the age. He'll be with us. He'll be with us. So my question I want to end with is this, is how can we pray big this school year and this fall and believe God for a harvest of souls? We see his words of Christ and we want to please God. We see his works and we see, we see his works demonstrated compassion and we want to have compassion and love for those that are in our world and those that we know that don't know Christ. And he's given us the way that we can join him in his mission. And that's to be about kingdom business, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So who's on board? Amen. Who wants to be a part? Amen. All right. All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to introduce something. So I get the ushers to those who have these cards that you're going to pass out. These cards are called the circle of three cards. So we're just going to, you're going to go down to an aisle, just pass them down the aisle, give everybody a card. Give everybody a card. Just pass it down the aisle, and we'll, well, I'll talk as you guys are passing them. And so this is an idea that I felt like the Lord laid on my heart about six months ago, really, uh, in January, a little bit more than six months ago, a pastor friend of mine did something similar in Wisconsin, and when he said it, I was like, I want to do that at, at our church. And he called it the circle of three, so I didn't want to try to be creative. I'm going to call it the circle of three, and, and you'll get a card, and you'll have three lines on it. And what that card is for is for you to write down the names of three people. could be three families, but on my card, I have three names here that I wrote down of people that I know are not Christians, that I know are not in relationship with Christ yet. And so who is that in your life? Is it, is it your husband? Is it your wife that's not at church here today? Is it a kid? Is it, is it a child of yours that's, that's wandering from the Lord? Uh, it could be somebody who's, who's walked away from God, walked away from religion, just said, I don't want anything to do with God, but they once were in church. Whoever it is in your life that you know needs the gospel of Jesus Christ, write down three names. On this card, the circle of three. And we're going to spend August and September and October, the rest of August, so three full months, we're going to spend praying for these people. And we're going to remind you, are you praying for your three? Are you praying for them? Who, who are your three? Think about it. 
even take the time now. There might be an ink pen. You might know right away. It took me, took me about three minutes, and I wrote down, I wrote down three, three names of three men that are in my life that I want to see. I know the Lord wants to see. Surrender to Christ. And we're going we're gonna to pray for them. We're going to be intentional in our time to pray for them, to take this card, take it with you, put it in your pocket, bring it with you in your car, wherever you go. When you wake up in the morning, pray for the three people because I believe that God answers prayer. And if there's one prayer that God's going to answer, I believe, is, is a prayer that's in alignment with his will. And he desires that all men would repent and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his desire. That's, that is God's will. So write the names down. Pray for them. And we're going to go August, September, October praying for our circle of three. And, and what we want to do is, depending on schedule, we're going to figure out the right time. But first or second week of November, we're looking at maybe the second Friday of November, work around home of Christian football schedule. We're going to have an evangelistic fall festival after the pumpkin patch single day event, evening event, back on the football field. And we're going to get you to invite, invite the people you pray for, invite others that you know that don't know the Lord. And we want to, we want to get back there. We want to have a jambalaya. We want to have some good foods and kids for some games for kids. And we want to, we want to have some time of worship. And I'm going to get up and I'm going to preach a gospel sermon. I'm going to preach a gospel message. We're going to prayer counselors that will come down front. We're going to invite people to come and receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we're going to believe for a harvest. Would you believe with me? Would you believe with me? Do you believe it? So, we're going to be doing a series uh, in the fall to coincide with this. I'm calling it Pray Big. Pray Big. It's a book written by Alistair Begg. I called his ministry and asked him if I could, if I could steal his title for his book that he wrote. He wrote a book on prayer. And so starting in October-ish, we're going to lean into prayer. We're going to talk about prayer. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul's prayer, prayers, and we're going to be pray big. We're going to pray big for, this, for the end of this year. We're going to pray big for this fall. We're going to believe for God to send in a harvest of souls for his glory. Amen? Amen. So this is a circle of three. Write down those names. Pray for them. I have something else that we can give you. This will be at the welcome desk. This is a track, a gospel track that we ordered. We can order more if we run out. On the front, it says two ways to live. Two ways to live. Starts off, simple gospel message. God, the good ruler and creator. Two, our rebellion against God and explains those in simple terms. Three, God's justice. Four, God sent Jesus to die for us. Five, Jesus, the risen ruler and savior. And six, Two ways to live. Two ways to live. And here's how, it, here's how it ends. The first way to live is to continue in our rebellion against God, ignoring Him and running our own lives in our own way. Sadly, this is a choice that many people continue to make. The end result of this living, of living this way, is the inevitable and rightful judgment of God. But there is another way. If we turn to God and ask for forgiveness, trusting in Jesus as a resurrected ruler and Savior, then everything changes. God wipes the slate clean. He accepts Jesus' death as payment for our sinful rebellion and freely and completely forgives us. He pours his own spirit into our hearts and gives us a new life that stretches past death and into eternity. We are no longer rebels, but part of God's own family. We now live for God's son, Jesus, as our ruler. And each chapter has an explanation like that. Simple gospel message. If you want one of these, take them, give them to your neighbor's Give them to one of your circle of three. They're at the welcome desk. Get, get, get some. If we, if we run out, we'll order some more. They're, they're not very expensive. Two ways to live. Amen?